good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. to horror queers we're talking horror anthologies we're talking canadian as fuck and we're talking contemporary halloween icon sam and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking killing children the movie oh my god so many child deaths i'm (laughs) in love so so many kids i've seen this movie oh sorry everyone we're talking michael doherty's trick-or-treat the classic 2007 oops i mean kind of maybe 2009 film we'll talk about that in a minute yeah i've seen this movie at least like 10 times and i always forget that like the majority of deaths are children in this movie (laughs) it's true and the movie gets away with it because it doesn't actually show you anything like all of the deaths happen off screen but still child murder trace child murder yeah but you know what though even though it happens off screen well i mean minus the jack-o'-lantern smasher uh we, we see quite a bit of him but um yeah i don't know uh it's a lot more playful than i i mean i remember it being playful but it's despite its r rating and its penchant for killing children like it still managed to be like kind of a fun and frivolous little movie oh absolutely and i think it's one of the reasons why this movie is a classic Oh, 12 years after it comes out, it's a classic. And I feel like a lot of people would normally, like, raise their nose at that. But not so with this movie. I think this is pretty much universally beloved. Like, it's not even a cult classic. It's a classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, the only thing that prevented it from being more of a classic is if it had gone to fucking theaters. Hey, fucking man to that. But before we get too much deeper into this discussion, I do want to bring in our guest, because I'm sure she has a lot to say about the matter as well. All right, everyone. So you may have seen her work at such places like Slash Film, Birth Movies, Death, Fangoria, and Collider. She is a co-host of the Black Magic Coven podcast, which discusses the supernatural, paranormal ghost stories, cryptids, killers, and haunted forbidden places. Oh, and she's also one of my co-workers at my day job. <laughs> Please welcome Marissa Mirable. Hey guys, thank Hi. you for having me. Thank you for coming to talk trick or treat. I'm so excited. <laughs> How are you doing, Marissa? Are you staying sane? You know, as much as possible, I suppose, but we all go a little mad sometimes, especially during COVID, so... <laughs> I feel like that's a question that people just don't even know how to answer anymore. It's like when you haven't seen someone for a really long time and you say like, so how have you been? And everybody's just like, "Uh, I I don't know. know. Like, we're all just going through this. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, Tracy mentioned that we work together at the Chronicle, but, you know, we chat pretty much every day, but I haven't (laughs) seen you in like eight months. It's actually kind of bizarre. So you two are probably the two people that I talk to the most, like, (laughs) on a daily basis that, like, Mm -hmm. I'm not, like, forced to talk to, you know? It's like we're, like, natural (laughs) friends. So this is really kind of an interesting um, experience for me, having you both on this podcast. (laughs) Worlds colliding. (laughs) That's really what it is. I'm excited, though. I love this movie. Yeah, so no, let's talk about that. So, you know, I, I obviously like sent you a list of potential films to cover, and you really gravitated towards this one. Why is that, Marissa? <laughs> 
I just think it's a fantastic little horror film and it didn't get as much love and recognition as it deserved. I think it was a little bit ahead of its time. And, you know, the whole distribution situation was a little bit strange. How it went straight to DVD and, you know, I just really love it. You know, I think it encapsulates the holiday itself, Halloween in so many different areas over one's life. And, mm-hmm. It's just such a great anthology, like special effects, you know, fun acting, great score. There's just so many great components about it. It's so fun. It never gets old to watch. I do wonder if that, I mean, because I have a bit of information on like what the issues with the release trouble, but at the end of the day, no one really knows for certain why this movie was delayed for two years. There's mm-hmm. a lot of speculation, but there's not a lot of definitive answers. And I'm a little surprised that Warner Brothers never kind of cop to it. But I do wonder, though, if the fact that it was an anthology, like contributed to that a bit even though and we'll talk about this more in a bit but like it really is a seamless film in terms of like the division of the stories where it doesn't really feel like oh one story ends another one begins one story ends another one begins like it feels very innovative for the anthology format you know right and i think that's one reason i really love it so much because i'm honestly not a big fan of anthologies i do like you know, creep show, but it is very segmented to me. Mm-hmm. The way that this seamlessly, you know, you have one character that's within each part of the storyline. It's very intricately and meticulously woven together to complete a narrative in a really smart way while also having independent subplots, you know, or sublines. The way that it flows really well, like you were saying, it comes together so smoothly and so nicely that it seems like a complete film and it's not just broken up and choppy. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I feel bad for the editor almost because editing this would probably be really stressful because of how they <laughs> how they all interact and how so many scenes are kind of like implied, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, too, like, modern examples of, like, horror anthologies. I mean, you have your VHS trilogy, you have Southbound, and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm pretty sure both of y'all have, like, the Mortuary Collection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one that's kind of similar to this style. Hmm. Yeah, but even that one, I would argue it, it still uses a barely conventional framing device. Like, the way mm-hmm. it dips in and out of the stories is yeah. similar to this, but once we go into a story, we don't stop. Like, we're not mm-hmm. intercutting with other stories at the same time. And I do think that that's what's innovative about Trick or Treat. Mm-hmm. I agree, because you forget how many times... I mean, I'll use one example, but like how many times we cut back to the Anna Paquin story constantly throughout the majority of this film. And granted, mm-hmm. this movie's 78 minutes without credit. It's not, like, a lengthy film, but it feels full still, and it breezes by. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, so let's go into kind of how this film got made. And again, I don't have a ton of information, but we'll go with what I have. So, <laughs> Little Demon Sam, who is, of course, the physical manifestation <laughs> of the... Do we want to call it a holiday? Samhain? Yeah, I mean, yeah. celebration, holiday, festival, you know... I will tell you that I honestly didn't know it was pronounced Sawin until I saw this movie, you know, a Sawin. decade ago. Because I always go to Halloween 2, the original, when Donald Pleasance is like, <laughs> Sam Hain, Sam Hain. <laughs> it has a very deceptive spelling, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I had read it was from, like, the translation of Celtic, like, the writing or, like, the alphabet was slightly different or something. (laughs) Right. Well, that would make sense because this is based on Gaelic and Celtic condition. No. Mm -hmm. Histories? Yeah. 
I know we're going to be second-guessing ourselves so much in this. But no, I think you're right, Joe. Now, Sam himself, he got his start in a short film that was written and directed by Michael Doherty in 1996 called Season's Greetings. And this actually was included on the Blu-ray. Did either of y'all watch this? I've seen it before, but I didn't watch it before this. Okay. I did. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, it's kind of like a rough animation style. I mean, it's like three or four minutes long. It's like Sam walking around. He gets cornered in an alley by a thug, and we see Shad, like him getting beat up in like a silhouette. I was surprised that it was actually animation, like freehand drawing. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be, you know, in-person shooting, you know, like oh. a short. So I found that kind of interesting. It was like, reminded me a little bit of Vincent, Tim Burton's old school short that he did. But uh, yeah, it's only like three or four minutes, but I mean, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, like the the, the, the gotcha because you know, Joe Joe and I have been doing a lot of shorts right now for our micro queer segments, and oh, okay. you know, but we've discussed how a lot of short films like it's kind of like oh, like we're building up to the end for this like gotcha moment, and the gotcha of this film is that yeah, basically Sam walks out of the alleyway with uh, his bag of candy filled with a body mm-hmm. <laughs> of his abuser, and basically uh, yeah, the camera zooms in on his face, and his eye kind of gets a glowy look, and he has an evil smile, and that's the end of it. So this movie just kind of was birthed off of. Of that basic 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 concept but yeah like despite having been portrayed as such in, in this film and a bunch of other works um Sawin is not you know a deity or a personage of ancient celtic polytheism it's just the name of the celebration so yeah celebration is what we'll say instead of holiday but that's fine. sure it's kind of evolved over the years <laughs> right. well it's based in pagan tradition right which i think is one of the i don't know it's definitely one of the reasons why i love halloween as a celebration slash holiday Mm -hmm. because it's one of the few things that has actually survived not being co-opted by like a religious faction Mm -hmm. it's actually almost staunchly anti-religious so i kind of like the fact that we celebrate the end of a season and the transition into a new one like so the end of the harvest and into the winter but also this idea that there's a liminal divide between the thin veils that separate our world and the spirit world I love all of the kind of mysticism of it and how it doesn't have ties to, like, Catholicism. I actually really like that. Obviously, that makes total sense, but I've never even thought about that as being, like, not even anti-religious, but, like, it just no religions, yeah, like, kind of co-opt this holiday for anything. <laughs> and yeah, I just yeah. never really thought about that. Like, I mean, obviously, corporations have co-opted it for a lot of things, but whatever. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Including the image of Sam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or people, like, maybe demonize it a little bit, like, say that witchcraft or, you know, that holiday is associated with Satan, like, they could turn it negatively. But like you were saying, it goes back to a time that's not even really focusing on that at all. It's about the transitions of the seasons, and there's so many different components of it. Like, that's one thing I love about Trick or Treat, too, is that it tackles a lot of different aspects of these traditions and ideas for that festival. Like, there's you know, the sacrificial element, there's the trick-or-treating element, there's just the costume element. There's just so many different things that are around those traditions over the years with the history of that festival or Halloween in and of itself that it tackles. I think it does it really well. Well, and I think the key here too is that it respects the holiday. And I think that that's something that about this particular like celebration, holiday, whatever, that (laughs) as I say, whatever to like disrespect the holiday. (gasps) Sam will be coming after you. Well, no, because Mm -hmm. it's even reminding me of like, you know, Shudder's host that came out earlier this year of how, oh, you have to respect the dead. Otherwise bad shit happens to you. And this feels like it's written and directed by a man who respects the celebration. Mm Mm-hmm. And wants to celebrate it. And that's what I love about it. Mm -hmm. So 
this is his first sorry this is doherty's first like director feature directorial debut he kind of got his start and joe i don't know how we keep coming back to this i know right because we just did urban legends final cut with john ottman who is buddy buddy with alleged pedophile sexual abuser brian singer yep well little do we know that michael doherty also got his start in singer's umbrella he co-wrote x2 x-men united as well as superman returns but to also connect back to our urban legends episode he also co-wrote the direct-to-video sequel urban legends bloody mary (laughs) oh my gosh i never saw that that came out a couple years ago right that's not too old oh it's 2006 it's right but it's the same it's the same year as superman returns actually (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay never mind <laughs> no that could be last year that could be a decade ago. yeah i know yeah. what is time well it's i mean it's kate mara in the lead pre-fame so you know you can <laughs> make of that what you will but i do think that because brian singer is an active producer on this film and i think that's kind of how doherty was able to a get warner brothers to do this film and also mm-hmm. get the cast that he has right yeah calling in some favors here yeah well because brian cox was obviously in x-men 2 I don't know if Anna Dylan... Paquin, or is she only in X Men One? No, oh, she's duh! In two, right, <laughs> she's in the first three. <laughs> no, you're right. Okay, I always forget that Anna Paquin was in the X Men movies. I, I don't even mm-hmm. know what to say to that. <laughs> it's because her her rogue character is so sad. She plays the role well, but she is not given anything to do, and it's a very frustrating arc. Yep, and granted, I haven't seen the rogue cut of Days of Future Past, but apparently, she does have a lot more to do in that version. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that obviously without Singer, this movie wouldn't have existed, which is kind of a shame. But, you know, it is what it is. Yep. So they filmed this movie. Now, it is supposed to be released October 5th, 2007, just in time for a Halloween release. Oh, this would be my freshman year of college. Jesus. So anyway, Warner Brothers, without explanation or reason, pulled the film from the schedule and no release date was announced. So... One possible reason that they would have pulled it, and this is what people think, is that Saw 4 was slated for release around the same time and Warner Brothers didn't want to compete against it. Because, right. again, bear in mind that like Saw 2 and 3 each went on to make like $80 million domestically and dominate the October period for the, the two previous years. Little did we know that, you know, <laughs> after 3, the box office numbers would steadily decline for that franchise. Yeah, but it's still like a powerhouse, right? I mean, if you're looking at the release calendar and you're looking at the previous years, you're thinking this $12 million film that, sure, has famous people in it, but is from an untested director, not built on an established property, Mm -hmm. going up against arguably the juggernaut of the Halloween season. Yeah, the little film is going to blink. Which I think is really interesting, though, given where we are now. I mean, obviously pre-COVID, because remember... Saw, I think, was supposed to come out in October, but then they pushed it to May to avoid competition with Halloween Kills. <laughs> yeah, well, because they looked at the box office for Halloween, <laughs> and then they looked at the box office for Jigsaw. <laughs> and I never thought about this, and I don't know how accurate this is either, but according to some IMDb trivia, mm. another possible reason the film was buried by the studio was that it was possible fallout from the box office disappointment of Superman Returns, which was, again, co-written by Michael Doherty and produced and directed by Brian Singer. And his production company is the one that produced this. So I don't know if there was like a personal vendetta. I mean, if if we're going to believe this line of like thinking there's like a personal vendetta, because I just don't see how the box office disappointment of Superman Returns is really going to affect the release and box office of this film, which is a completely different beast minus the creative people behind it. Yeah, it seems very suspicious. Like, I wonder if there is some kind of weird rumor mill 
like people were very confused in the wake of Superman Returns not doing well. Mm-hmm. And it generated its own kind of urban legends about what would happen to the people associated with that film. But I do want to ask you, Marissa, because I did not remember or know any of this until we started prepping for this episode. Do you remember seeing anything connecting this to Brian Singer when it came out? No. Looking back on this, I mean, it was just recent, like earlier today, I was like, oh, he is connected to it. I wasn't focusing on that. I try and... I hate getting caught up in that kind of stuff. It's disgusting and terrible, and I don't like contributing to it. And so Mm -hmm. it puts a damper on the film. But at the same time, you know, I don't want him to overshadow all the other people who put in a lot of amazing work into this film, you know, both in production and acting. There's more good seeds than bad on this film. So for sure. As lame as it is and awful as it is, uh, you know, I was just trying to focus on all the people that... The good. Focus on the good. Yeah, the good. So yes and no a little bit. It is weird though, right? Because if you think about it, like if this film had been released now, on the poster we would see like from the executive producer of Pupil or the X-Men franchise or something. And I feel like we just didn't see any of that, which is why I don't actually believe the Superman Returns penalty thing that just seems well and honestly like i'm not super involved with those franchises anyway like trace knows yeah you don't you don't do comics and superheroes (laughs) (laughs) i don't do like x-men marvel so much i still haven't seen endgame you know like (laughs) (laughs) you don't like them spandex i know i mean I had to, like, beg her to go see Birds of Prey. (laughs) Which I did love. Oh, Marissa, that is such a you movie. Oh, I I did love Birds of Prey. I I thoroughly enjoyed that, actually. So I was really glad I went to go see that. But, yeah, I mean, typically that's not my cup of tea. So, you know, that's another reason why I wasn't super involved in that kind of news at the time because I didn't have, like, a personal relationship with that fandom and wasn't keeping up with a lot of uh, news coming from there. So... Uh, I wasn't super familiar with him, but well, yeah, I mean, I I am now. <laughs> I think what y'all are forgetting, though, is that because this didn't get that theatrical release, we weren't getting trailers for this. Because if, if, we, right. if we were, there would have been from the producer of X-Men, whatever, or I guess right. produced to you by the director of X-Men. But I mean, again, because like, there's two Blu-ray releases for this film. One is like the original release in 09, and the other is the Screen Factory Blu-ray. I have the original, mm-hmm. and Singer is all over the production featurette on this, which is like a 30-minute featurette. Right. And that was made at the time, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah. This one was at the time. Um, like, okay. the, this interviews with the, the cast, like, during filming. So, it's again, it's also weird when you see a direct-to-DVD film get this kind of, like, behind-the-scenes treatment for something that, that they were just going to drop. <laughs> So I have the old school one from like 2009 and the special features are just the short and I think the director's commentary. Wait, no, that's the one I have too. Really? So there there are a couple extra scenes. There's a school bus uh, VFX comparison, but there is one 30 minute featurette called How Did Many of Our Scary Season Traditions Start? And it's just about like how Halloween came to be. Wait, so Trace, you don't have a Scream Factory? Well, no, I don't. I don't have it because the thing is, I looked and like there's like two or three extra bonus features in the Screen Factory one, and I think they use the same transfer. So it was one of those where I was like, that's not really worth the upgrade to me. <laughs> yeah, 
But this film actually does get its world premiere on December 9th, 2007. So again, two months after it was supposed to go to theaters at Harry Knowles' infamous Buttonomathon, which oh my I feel God. <laughs> I know. Just enough. <laughs> Another dude not really worth mentioning. It's not that great. <sighs> I've never I attended know. a Buttonomathon, but listeners, if you don't know who that is, he's also a no- noted creep who uh, used to yeah. run the website uh, and at Cool News. Still does. Well, yeah, this was, I think this was his birthday celebration, though, where it was basically 24 hours of films. It was like half films that were like, you know, old or like repertory screenings and then mm. half of like new films. And this was like one of those surprise new films. of like, Hey, like, we don't know when this is coming out. We're going to show this. Right. It did a bunch of festivals over the years before finally Warner just released it straight to DVD on October 6th, 2009. <sighs> yeah, basically dumped it. I mean, yeah, that, that's exactly what they did. I mean, I don't think they knew the life it was going to have today. No. Oh, no. They had no idea what they had. <laughs> but yeah, so we're, I mean, I have no box office information to give you. Joe, you were right. The budget was $12 million, which again, for something like this, seems like a lot of money. Um, yeah. When you watch it, it looks like they're using their $12 million fairly well. Like, mm-hmm. as Marissa said, we've got some big names, but also the FX work looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked because this is a film that you could easily see having janky CGI in it. Yeah. Like, this is the time that would have been rife for bad CGI. Mm-hmm. And this film still looks really good. Oh, when we get to the werewolf transformation scene, we'll have plenty to talk about oh, <laughs> with so practical good. effects. So good. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this movie is pretty like, universally beloved. It's got an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.42 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 7.2 out of 10. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's a great movie. I love it. We all love it. And um, let's talk about what it's about. <laughs> okay. So after a brief Halloween safety PSA, we open on costumed couple Henry, Tamo Pennicut, and Emma, Leslie Bibb, Leslie returning Bibb. home. <laughs> oh, the Bibbs. Uh, have we talked about her recently on something? Maybe it was the babysitter. I don't know. She is an actress that I just feel like has never gotten her due, and I think she's so funny all the time. <laughs> Except in this, where she's just a straight-up bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I feel bad because if people are coming into this and have never experienced her before, this is not a good representation of what she's like in all of her other roles. <laughs> Except maybe popular. She's a bit of a bitch and popular. Yeah, well, because when was popular like the early 2000s? Uh, like mid? Yeah. It would have been like a couple years before Glee. Well, because basically here, she's the opening kill. You know, she's like the Drew Barrymore. I mean, if we want to compare it to Scream at all. She's no. the, you know, famous celebrity opening kill here. And I'm wondering if it's no. proximity to... <laughs> celebrity kill. Well, nice no. try, Trace. But I'm wondering if her proximity to... Po- the, the film's proximity to popular, like, had anything to do with that. Because the husband... Oh, God. Tamo something? Tamo Pennicut. I only knew him from Dollhouse at the time. Oh, my God. He's on Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I've never seen Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> you should. You would fucking like it. It's actually really, really good. No, I've, I've heard that, but... I've just never <laughs> taken that deep dive. Yeah, there are some shout outs and a lot of allusions to other horror films within Trick oh, or Treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the opening scene, even though like she's not on par with Drew Barrymore, she doesn't carry the same weight necessarily. I think that scene is very reminiscent of Scream. You know, there there are rules, but there are not rules. Like, you know, you have to follow certain rules, but we'll also kill children kind of thing. 
Right. You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, the use of tension is really good. It's like you get a taste of tension and comedy in there, which I think is really good appetizer for that film. I think the editing in this scene is what works for me the most when she's constantly mm-hmm. pulling the sheets off of the. Yes. Uh, yes. What, what, what will we call these things? They're like They're ghost crucifixes. Crows. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Did you just say ghost crucifixes? <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Oh my god. That is my favorite new word. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, now we know what the subtitle for this episode is. Ghost crucifixes. <laughs> no, but it, and it does play with your expectations a bit, right? Because sure, again, sure. you keep thinking it's going to come from one of these ghost crucifixes. Yes. And then she just jumps out of the laundry basket. Yes. So you folks don't think that this is more of a homage to Halloween because Sam gets her under the sheet? I think it could be. I think that's definitely a possibility. And, you know, there was that guy across the street in the mask who's just staring at her in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, that's the threat, right? That would typically be a threat. But then it's like a um, red herring. It's not. Something else is going to happen. So I think that the Halloween references are definitely there, too. Which I loved that when I first saw that because all of those, you know, situations are very nerve wracking for me in general. Any like male just standing there staring at you is uncomfortable in any capacity, let alone in a mask. And then pulling sheets off of things. I mean, that's like that scene in Oculus. Mm. It's a trope and it's it gets me every time. That mm-hmm. tension, it just creeps me out. It usually is always something to just mess with you, but it's it still uncomfortable still effective yeah it still works on me <laughs> and slight side note too about them as characters we, this is we don't really get anything more from them after this film after this scene except like the brief appearances they have later in the in the film but they don't even like really get any dialogue but um i do love the sexual openness of this relationship mm-hmm. where she's basically like go masturbate and i'll just come finish you off in a yeah. couple minutes <laughs> <laughs> i know she's like lame to hang out with on Halloween and even lamer to like go to bed with on Halloween too. See, I got the impression that they were going to watch the tape together because she says, go start the tape. And so that's what I thought that he was obviously going to masturbate and stuff while she was cleaning up, which by the way, though, uh, that would take forever to oh, clean up yeah. that one. Her rationale makes no sense to me. Uh-huh. You're going to clean up your yard in the dark? Like she doesn't even turn <laughs> right. on lights. Right. Emma, you're crazy. Right. At the end of the night when you're wasted or lit, she actually uses yeah. the word lit, yeah, which is really funny. <laughs> 2007, lit. I know. I was like, is this where it comes from? I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so ridiculous. They are the definition of boring white yes. suburbia, though, right? Like, they go to a street parade, and then they yes. come home lightly buzzed so that they can watch a horrible-looking porno and yes. go to bed early. Yes. <laughs> Life in the burbs. So yes. Funny. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So she <laughs> she is killed by getting her throat slit with a pumpkin shaped sucker, and then when Henry comes down and discovers her body, we see the sucker has been jammed into her mouth, and that's when we get our animated credits. I think though that her face is probably the most disturbing image in the film for me. Like her stretched lips or cheeks with the the lollipop in it. Ooh, it is. Mm-hmm. It's really rough. <laughs> Well, and cutest weapon, you know, like the most Mm -hmm. adorable weapon, that little sucker that Sam has. It's super cute. But yeah, that kill scene is really great. And it's like Joe is saying, it goes back to the budget that they were utilizing. I mean, covered in the sheets and the way that it was cut and edited, it leaves a lot to the imagination, but it's still gory in its own right. So I think Mm -hmm. as graphic as this film can be, I think that it 
well, I don't have kids, but I think that it could be good for a younger audience because it doesn't show except a whole for stuff bunch. like this, right? Well, no, really? but, but okay, but like, so in terms of the editing, we actually do see the lollipop make contact with her neck, but it cuts away as soon as like he slits it, so you don't actually see the neck get slit. You just oh, okay. see that splash of blood from outside yeah, the sheet, which is and it's fun. a generous amount of blood. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he gets that jugular, which is good because sure. when people get their throat slit, it's a lot of blood. It's yeah. not a trickle. No. <laughs> Uh, it's connected to an artery. <laughs> okay, so what do you think of these animated credits? Oh, I, I always them. go back to Tales from the Crypt, but I recognize that obviously there's a longer tradition of like EC before that. I really liked them. They remind me of like old school horror comics from the 50s. And there was mm-hmm. a fun little behind the scenes little tidbit that I saw online that apparently they took drawings from people just on the production. Whoever could draw, they would just contribute to that opening credit so there wasn't like one particular artist who did all those drawings it was very much like a a group effort in a way and even with the opening scenes too of like the kids in various halloween costumes and stuff those are pictures from some of the cast and crew from when they were little in halloween costumes which i thought Uh, was fun that's very cute yeah (laughs) yeah I do think using someone on the production, reusing their talent when you're already paying them for another job, it's a bit of a double dip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I totally know what you mean. I'm just so used to wearing multiple hats anyways. Like, that's part of the low-budget indie horror scene at the same time, you know? Like a group effort, right? Everybody yeah. pitch in. And if you're credited, then that always that's fair. helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after a new story about the Halloween Street Parade, this film is set in Warren Valley, Ohio. Despite being filmed in where, Joe? Oh, this is filmed in BC, of course, because tax credits. Um, what is BC for people who don't know Canada? Oh, sorry, that's British Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> that's the province out west where they film all the CW shows. Oh my god! Or the X-Files, or... Or Battlestar Galactica Trace. I'm also looking at my Blu-ray of this, and on the back, like under the the credits, it says Superman and all related characters and elements are trademarks of and incorporated by DC Comics. What? Because I was trying to figure out when my Blu-ray came out because of our discussion from earlier. It was 2009, but there's this whole thing about Superman and DC Comics characters licensing on it. God. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So we are technically in Warren Valley, Ohio, and we pick up with sisters Lori, played by Anna Paquin, and Danielle, who is played by Lauren Lee Smith, and they are shopping for Disney princess costumes with their friends Janet, Monica Delane, and Maria, Rochelle Eights. I love all of this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like to say, oh, I prefer this story over this one, because again, they're all interwoven together so well. But I but think, you like this one? Yeah, I like this one the most. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, obviously, you know, I like me some bitchy girls, but I also think the payoff for this one is probably my favorite. It's the most unexpected, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Lori, Anna Paquin's carrier, uh, character, is an obvious nod to Halloween. I was like, you yes. want to talk Halloween homage? Yeah. It's like, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, like, that's pretty straightforward. But I actually love this, too. You know, especially with, like, the the creeps behind the production of this. Like, this could have gone really poorly. But through a female lens, I think it still works. Because costumes are so hypersexualized, it's so ridiculous. Like, of course, they're putting on slutty, like, Disney princess clothes. And mm-hmm. they do focus, the camera does focus on their bodies. But I think that it's in a way that makes sense for the timeline. And it makes sense for their characters. And they use their bodies later on in the film. It's for their objective. 
So it's a way to like lure in, you know, as a predatory sense from their perspective. So it works. You know what I mean? Like it could no, very much not work, but it, I think it does. I agree with that. And I think, I mean, because I was actually surprised, Megan, like how little nudity there is in the film. Because I think the yeah. only breast shots we get are actually in the porno in the beginning uh-huh. and on one of the girls' mid werewolf transformation. And it doesn't mm-hmm. feel lecherous or creepy at all. It feels more like, again, I don't want to use the word necessary, but it just feels like it fits in organically with what is transpiring yeah. on screen. I think it's mm-hmm. primal and like more animalistic and mm-hmm. instinctual versus exploitative. Right. So I think, yeah, it works well. And I like what you said, Marissa, that the voyeurism, and of course mm-hmm. we actually have literal voyeurism in this scene as right. we've got a creepy perv who's looking at them as they get changed. He is ironically played by Quinn Lord, who is the same actor who plays Sam in the other scenes. So yes. again, a double mm-hmm. dip. But I completely agree with you, Marissa. I think so much of the way that we look at these women and a lot of their dialogue, right, about like picking up men and using what you got and that kind of stuff. It's all very much to subvert your expectations so that when we do get the transformation, it hits harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do like what they what they did with that. And it works well. And, you know, since Lori, her character, Anna Paquin is this virginal type character they want her to lose her virginity and (laughs) she's 22 years old and that kind of stuff happens if you're 22 years old like you're still a virgin you know and her older sister's like come on come on Mm -hmm. that virginity is not exactly what you think it is like her first time is not what you think it is so i like that aspect of it too yeah and also the idea that she was going to lose her virginity to a man dressed in a baby costume oh yeah yeah P.S. though, so did y'all see this bit of trivia where the guy that plays the baby man is actually also the same one who plays the giant baby ghost in the 13 Ghosts remake? No. I did see that, yeah. <laughs> oh my Talk god. Talk about being typecast, typecast in a wow. really bad way. <laughs> the pickings for an actor who plays a giant man baby are just really hard. <laughs> like, it's a hard market right now. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine him in his baby outfit walking around with like a placard being like, we'll work for food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Poor man, baby. But that's kind of the great little specks of comedy that come up. You know, she's like, yeah, I have a guy for you. He's cute and he's young, you know? It's like, uh. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, though, when you know that they're going to murder all of them anyway, it doesn't really matter what they look like unless like the age matters. <laughs> Right. And I think that's just it plays into like this teasing of like what you think is going to happen is not exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. But I mean, whether you're going to bed with somebody for the first time or whether you're going to eat someone for the first time, they should be young and cute. Come on. <laughs> Tasty. Tasteful. Have standards. Come on. Trace. <laughs> he was also passed out drunk, I think. Like the guy wasn't even like coherent. Oh, no. So. There's that factor, too, but I guess it doesn't matter when you're going to kill them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we're cutting back and forth between the girls. So we're getting this Mm -hmm. kind of backstory as they're coaching Laurie on how to pick up men. And we're also introduced to gluttonous, preteen, diabetic Charlie, who is played by (laughs) Brett Kelly. (laughs) And he is getting a history lesson about Halloween traditions from Stephen Wilkins, played by Dylan Baker. (sighs) Okay, so I've never seen Todd Haynes' Happiness, but I did do a look into what it was about, because the only thing I know about it is that Baker plays a pedophile in that movie. Okay. Do y'all know what I'm talking about at all? I haven't seen it. 
I know the movie, but yeah, I haven't okay. seen that. I just think it's interesting that we, oh, we've got Dylan Baker playing a pedophile in this late 90s movie, and now he's like a child murderer slash attempted rapist murderer in this movie. Yeah. Sure. He's got a type. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Baker often plays the villain, and uh, if people listen to our talk at the Nightstream Festival on The Cell, then you'll know that that's one of his rare roles, where he's not a completely despicable person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I forgot he was in The Cell. It's a nothing role, so you're forgiven for... It's yeah. really weird, though. Like, when you, like, if, you, if you talk to, like, the layman, then you're like, oh, Dylan Baker. It's always like, you know, he played the scientist that was going to become Lizard in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, but then, like, yeah. it didn't happen. <laughs> and we're back to the MCU slash Sony slash... So many connections! <laughs> it's a rich tapestry. Yeah. Did you have another insight to make apart from the fact that he's just popping up in these grody roles? Oh, I just like him in this movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. He is giving you the appropriate amount of 50s suburban dude where he's like manners, but also murdering people in the basement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do we think about this vomit, though? I have to look away every time I watch this scene. See, I'm not good with watching throw up on screen or vomit on screen, but this one just looks like uh, chocolate water to me. And apparently (laughs) it was all edible and the cast would just like snack on it. Like, oh no. Yeah. Well, not like regularly, but they could eat it. Like it was fine, you know, and they would replay it over and over because it was just hilarious to watch. But it just is so campy it doesn't bother me it's like the chunks and the realistic parts like ugh. no it, it, yeah it reminds me of if that scene in stand by gross. me when they have like they, they tell the story of the blueberry pie eating contest and like the guy yeah. just vomits or, or in witches of eastwick when veronica carway vomits all the cherry pits mm. this is on par with all that for me though it's i, I don't yeah. care that there's no solids in it it's gross and it really like <laughs> Yeah, oh, I mean, I find it comedic. It's very Ugh. comedic. It's just like it's just straight water, kind of. It just looks like chocolate water. Like I don't know. I really like the use of blood. If we're talking like bodily fluids and liquids, the use of blood I think is a lot better than the use of vomit in this. Because when we were talking about the opening scene, for example, the blood that they use, like they would heat it up beforehand so it would steam as it was going off of Leslie Bibb. Whatever surface it was on, they were, like, heating the blood up, and that's, like, a little... That's attention to detail. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know what I mean? Because sometimes blood, the consistency doesn't match the scene, especially with, like, smaller horror films, like, where they're cut or how bad it's cut. But, like, attention to detail like that, like a cold Halloween night or, like, autumn Halloween night, you know... Mm -hmm. I thought was really cool. But yeah, I mean, if you're sensitive to vomit on screen, then you might want to turn away. For me, it wasn't too (laughs) bad, surprisingly, but it is still gnarly. I just like it because it clearly conveys that he's obviously sick because Mm -hmm. of what Principal Wilkins put into this candy, but also because let's just say he has been snacking on too much candy and maybe he (laughs) has quite a bit of it to vomit out as a result. <laughs> Can't control his vices. There, there's some gallows humor, obviously, peppered throughout this film. I think this is my favorite use of it in the film is everything that happens to Wilkins as he's trying to like dispose of this body, like from dragging him inside and getting like the vomit on him, or when he vomits more on him, and he's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> Gosh, and then know. playing that off as though it's a Halloween costume, which yes. is, of course, what you would expect. <laughs> so great. He ends up having to answer the door. And this is our introduction to Angelic Macy, played by Britt McKillop. Uh, I could not figure out what Sarah, the girl with the braces, who is played by Isabel Deleuze, is supposed to be. 
Do either of you know? I literally just called her headgear in my notes. I think she was was an alien or something. Didn't she have like a head on top of her? Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah, I think she had some sort of alien head or spacesuit or something on top of her. It wasn't like over her head like a helmet. It was just on top. I I actually really liked those kids. The main character. Macy. Macy, yeah. That actress, she was in that show... Dead, Dead like, like me, me that I love. So I was really excited to see her in this film too. I don't think she's done too much since, but she plays a really good bitchy little teenager in this movie. Yeah, she's a proper brat. Yeah, it's a departure from her Dead Like Me role because she plays um George's sis- younger sister yeah. who's all like depressed the whole show. Yeah, like <laughs> Reggie and she's, you know, she's more docile and stuff, but this one she's very like vindictive and mm-hmm. manipulative and rude, so... As always, when characters get the chance to play bad, they embrace it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's dressed like an angel, but she's actually a yeah. huge bitch, so. Of course. <laughs> and uh, the final member of the trio is Pirate Chip, who was played by Alberto Gizzi. And they're basically there because they want candy, but also because they're looking to collect pumpkins. And this is also our first proper look at Sam. So he ends up following them. And initially, of course, you don't understand who he is. So you think he's just a little kid who's kind of following them around as they (laughs) trick or treat. This movie loves to subvert your expectations about like who and what is connected. He also then proceeds to drag his bag down the stairs covered in chocolate puke vomit. Yeah, it's gross. (laughs) (laughs) so he has an open grave wilkins does in the backyard and as he's about to fill it in there are other bodies in there because of course by this point is charlie already dead or is charlie the one who's grabbing him i think charlie's the one who's grabbing him maybe i'm wrong oh no that's right because i think he decapitates charlie with the shovel and then okay yeah i figured it out hey did y'all watch the second season of what we do in the shadows yet no Yes. Okay, there's a whole episode where, like, they're bu- they've buried too many bodies in the yard, and, like, they become sinkholes. Oh, that's <laughs> And funny. I was just thinking about how, like, not sanitary it must be just to keep burying children in your backyard. <laughs> well, no, because Brian Cox's character, Mr. Creek, actually comments about how it smells like a whorehouse out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a dead whore. It smells like a dead whore. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Craig. How do you know what a dead whore smells like, sir? Oh, I believe it. <laughs> Yeah, so he is interrupted both by Mr. Krieg as well as his young son, Billy, who is played by Connor Levins. And if you do not like children, Billy is fucking annoying. Yeah, he's terrible. (laughs) He's the worst. And he makes out of this movie alive, which really upsets me. (laughs) I think it works so well, though. It, It brings some comedy to it, honestly. Like, I think it's hilarious. It feels almost Looney Tunesy, right? Though, with like, I think there's like two instances where uh, Wilkins is about to like, you know, bash the shovel down, and he gets "Daddy." Yeah, and I think it works the perfect number of times. You do it a third time, I think it's too much. Yeah, I like it more than the way Doherty frames it in the basement because I appreciate that we're meant to think that Wilkins hates his son so much that he's willing to kill him, but <laughs> this part just. I don't know. It's either that it goes on too long or that I just don't believe it. Maybe I did the first time I saw it, but now I'm like, okay, let's just move on. Right. No, because it's too much misdirection, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's exaggerated, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do appreciate a good reference to Creepshow by using Charlie's head as the jack-o'-lantern mm-hmm. on the plate. 
But uh, we should also acknowledge that, of course, there is a brief scene where Wilkins, as he's about to go back into the house, yeah. he does see Krieg yelling for help at the window, and he just says, meh, screw you. But yeah. you do see Sam tackle him, too, which I, I don't think I've ever noticed before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're not paying attention, this is where the editing is really good, because mm-hmm. if you're looking, you'll see things, but if you're not, you'll just kind of be like, eh, I don't know why that's significant. Oh. I guess that's the thing, too, right? Because I guess Sam probably went just from trick-or-treating from Wilkins' house going to Krieg's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. The timeline <laughs> of this movie is very fun. Indeed, yeah. Particularly the first time you see it where you're just like, oh, wait, they are connected. Oh, wait, they're all happening at the same time. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> what fun. Okay, so Charlie is done. Wilkins is seemingly done for now. So we pick back up with the trick-or-treaters. They have an uncomfortable encounter with a drunk Mrs. Henderson who is having a furry sex party, question mark. Hey, I thought it it was like an orgy, um, 100%. Marissa, I'm I'm jealous you already brought up the Dead Like Me connection because literally watching this, I was like, who do I know that woman from? What what is she? She was in there too. She's Dolores Herbig, as in her big brown eyes from Dead Like Me. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Listeners, if you haven't seen Brian Fuller's Dead Like Me, please seek it out. It is great. It's so good. I've only seen like two episodes of it. It's the show of his that didn't capture me in the same way the others did. So I was like, I'll get to it later. Yeah, um, well, you can probably find the whole set for cheap, but Rebecca Gayhart is in the first five episodes. Yeah. and there's really? only two okay. seasons, but it's yeah. pretty fun. Yeah, two seasons and a movie. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I thought they got a movie, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Back when they were still doing that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it. I, I'm 100% sure it's it's a little sex party going on there, which is really kind of fun. <laughs> I love how she offers them alcohol, too. She's like, it'll be our little secret. And they're like, no, <laughs> She's that's wasted. okay. Gosh. <laughs> But that, again, if we're talking about Halloween traditions, feels so real, right? Yeah. The people on the street who don't have kids, and they're just stuck at home having to give out candy, like, well, maybe I'll just drink this bottle of wine in between (laughs) trick-or-treaters. I think that's why, though, if we ever get trick-or-treat 2, which Doherty has been teasing for a decade, there's so many more things, like Halloween-type things that you can pull from to make uh, like more anthology stories for this. So that's something that's that they true. could add to that, too. Like, I don't know, do something with people giving kids alcohol or something. Mm-hmm. I would also love to see the people who make it out of this movie alive come back. Like, how fun would it be to have Mrs. Henderson have her own segment oh, yeah. if we get a sequel? Oh, that'd be great. Or even, you know, I was imagining that we could get Henry as an angry, vengeful husband slash boyfriend going after Sam, like kind of a Loomis character, right? Well, by the time, if they ever get around to making it, well, little Billy's probably going to be all grown up so he can be following his father's footsteps. (laughs) This is true, right? We can get a new actor, too. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I like how Sam is kind of this character because, you know, Michael Myers is so iconic with the Halloween franchise and just the holiday in general. And so Sam is kind of like this sort of childlike iconic version for the holiday two and trick or treat he sort of symbolizes the holiday in a lot of ways but it's through the lens of a child almost and oh, it's like uh-huh. he's creepy but he you don't know whether to like run from him or pick him up and give him a hug you know he's adorable but yes. uh he's also frightening and i love that and i think that's such that duality is so great with halloween in general encapsulates the festival or the holiday of halloween more than michael myers i think so it's kind of cool that they took that approach to him i would agree with that yeah i 100 percent agree with that as well i actually think it's one of the strongest reasons that this film has longevity and has Mm -hmm. become a classic 
I mean, I think there's a reason that we see Sam paraphernalia. Like, when you see trick-or-treat related mm-hmm. items for sale, it's always around Sam. It's not Emma's head as the jack-o'-lantern or Rhonda the savant witch or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's always Sam because I think people like the idea of this impish trickster who's going out and taking revenge, but he also wears footy pajamas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so adorable. He is very adorable. <laughs> All right, so Macy, Sarah, and Chip end up meeting with Schrader, who is played by Jean-Luc Bilodeau, and he is tasked with recruiting Savant Rhonda, who is played by Sam Todd. Or as they call her, Rhonda the R-word. Yeah. It doesn't ring well, but I do fully believe that children this age would use that word. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well, and if you think too about the fact that we do then have a story about these children encountering special needs children it plays into the idea that they are brats who don't understand what they're actually addressing so for them to use the r word makes sense in that regard totally that's true it plays into how actually like just their cruelness even more so you know, mm-hmm. and it makes their demise even more like rewarding. Oh, so satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, th- th- these kids are assholes. Like, yeah. I mean, Macy's the head asshole, but like, they're all assholes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's something satisfying about that too, right? Because this is a film that suggests that it's not adults are the monsters or men are the monsters. It's mm-hmm. like everyone has the capacity to end up as a victim of Sam's wrath or yeah. of a Samhain curse in mm-hmm. some regard. Everyone who doesn't adhere to the traditions and respect their fellow citizens will meet a bad end in this Mm -hmm. movie. All right. So this is arguably the weirdest part of the film is where we randomly cut to a woman being bitten by a vampire in an alley. (laughs) She technically has a name, Allie. And (laughs) she's Allie in an alley. (laughs) And she briefly interacts with Henry and Emma. This is really their only other scene where they get to do anything of note. And they dismiss her as a drunk. And in case you didn't feel bad that Emma dies, she's just like, all right, yeah, bye. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't care about this drunk woman. I do find that concept very terrifying, though, that you he would just lay a body and Mm -hmm. out in the parade and she could just kind of blend in. That idea of sort of, something sinister blending in with something normal like almost like like a ted bundy effect you know like really mm-hmm. really disturbing and uncomfortable so i like that scene actually and uh, the way it actually up. joe that's a better use of the dead body urban legend than it was in urban yeah. legends final cut when they had to go through like the tunnel of love with all the corpses yes. yeah. this is a way better use of that urban legend yeah yeah and i i, I think it hits home harder because the film doesn't feel the need to belabor it we see this vampire who will eventually be revealed to be Principal Wilkins. Mm -hmm. He's so comfortable using the anonymity that the costumes provide that he can just hide evidence of a crime. And the film doesn't feel the need to belabor the point by being like, oh my God, isn't it insane? It's like, yeah, here's a brief little moment of terror. Sure. And then we're going to cut away and move back to the other story. Well, I I think that's the thing too. I mean, I do agree that this particular bit feels out of place as you're watching it. Because it feels like the start of a new story, right? Like, oh, we're getting another one. So that, of course, it ends up being a combination of two other stories uh, that we've already seen before works for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's bad. I just think it's the one that 
again on a first time watch you think uh yeah did we need that why is that in there and of course when we see the vampire later we realize oh okay we're again setting things up it's all wraparound stuff yeah. yeah, and I think it makes the ending that much more, more satisfying, too, because it's violence towards a female, and then the female gets revenge, in a way, on mm-hmm. him later. Yeah, it's almost kind of like a rape revenge, but it's obvious it's not the rape getting the revenge, yeah. you know? Oh, but can we say shout out for no rape in this film? Oh, Super yeah. exciting. Yes. Yeah. Very, there isn't even exciting. really, like, sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. The girls get objectified, but I wouldn't say that they get harassed by men. Well, and if they do, no. we don't see it because they kill them first. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's actually like really refreshing, especially with like exploitation that could go into horror films and with women in general, like the gratuitous use of breasts. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's actually really nice that there's not any scenes like that in there. But yeah, I mean... I, I agree. The pacing in this film is also pretty smooth for the most part, but that that scene is a little bit strange. But for me, it kind of works later on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's seventy eight minutes. You know, we got we got to move. Yeah, and it's a lot. <laughs> like a lot happens. Like to even have that little tidbit in there, it doesn't have to be in there, and it kind of speaks to like the writing and the storyline. You know, it's very intricate. Yeah, absolutely. So we catch back up with the kids as they're wheeling their eight pumpkins to the rock quarry. And this is the site, we are told, of the Halloween school bus massacre. So we actually get a little flashback with a story recounted by Macy of the eight special needs children who, at the behest of their parents, were accidentally, in quotation marks, (laughs) drowned by their bus driver when the bus goes over the cliff. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much more to say about this because, I mean, obviously the bus driver will come back into play later for, like, kind of an 11th hour reveal, but I think it's fun. I like the color palette change during this scene because it looks very fall, you know? Mm -hmm. Slightly desaturated. Mm -hmm. I think this is where the cinematographer, Glenn McPherson, really shines because, like you're saying, Trace, the color palette, there's all these warm, like, reds and oranges and yellows, and it looks very vintage, and it's actually a really beautiful flashback story and super disturbing. Like, the costumes that the kids have are based on, like, old school Halloween costumes that were always mm-hmm. kind of strange. And apparently the kids playing these roles really did have some sort of physical disability or mental disability. So I found that kind of interesting. They contributed to the designs of those costumes, I think, too. So oh. that was kind of an interesting behind the scenes little tidbit that I've read. But also the special effects. When the bus goes over the cliff, they actually do that. And then they use a miniature when it goes down into the water. So there's very limited uh, CGI in this film, which is something to just further appreciate, too. That's probably why, too, it had a following, too. At least with horror fans. Because they, we, uh, we, sorry, they. <laughs> we can recognize that and see it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I uh, appreciate the special effects. I do really love that shot, though, where the bus goes over the edge. Mm-hmm. There's not a ton of really showy camera work in this. I would actually argue the film is more effective in its editing, but this is a nice moment where you're like, oh, okay, wow, I'm taking note of this. So that was a strong choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Trace will save the reveal of the driver, but we are told that he is never heard from again. <laughs> I do like that that's almost a quick little standalone vignette. Like you could almost see that as a short that originated yeah. before this began. And right. yet it's not. 
And it's fun to have an introduction to kind of like a lore character, you know, if you grow up in a specific, especially like a small town, you know, there's always this legend or this person that was never found again or this crazy person Mm -hmm. who lives in this creepy haunted house or you think is haunted, you know, so it fits the timeline with these kids and being that age group 100%. Yeah, and Tracy, you actually mentioned during the vomit scene that that reminded you of Stand By Me, and I get strong Stephen King vibes mm-hmm. from this particular backstory. It feels very like, are we in Castle Rock right now? <laughs> See, and I was thinking about um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 just because of the bus. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't it funny that we think of a school bus in a horror <laughs> film and it's like, Nightmare 2! Nightmare 2! <laughs> I see you! <laughs> it's gay! Okay. <laughs> All right, so we'll hop back to Lori for a moment. She's wandering around the street parade silently looking for her match. So this is kind of a a slow motion, mostly atmospheric bit. And then she sits down and she chats with Danielle by phone. This is where we get the ha-ha reveal that (laughs) Danielle has found her fat baby. (laughs) (laughs) And we also see that the vampire is still on the hunt and he is pausing to consider her. I do also want to give a quick shout out to Lauren Lee Smith's line delivery in this. The date that she has picked up from the costume shop comes up behind her and she's like, not now, Andrew. And he goes, uh, Josh. And she's like, whatever. It's amazing. Yeah, I think like the role reversals, uh, the stereotypical role reversals of men and women and their sort of approach to finding a partner is really great in this film and i like how Lori is dressed as little red riding hood and she's kind of like on the prowl for a Mm -hmm. guy as opposed to looking around like being scared so much it's all a bit on the nose given the final reveal but i do like it yeah for sure i don't mind it at all for all of those reasons even Mm -hmm. though i could easily see people like i worry that if this film came out in the last couple of years as opposed to more than a decade ago people would look at it and be like The symbolism is a little on the nose. It's like just a touch obvious. (laughs) But it goes back to it being a fun movie. You know, Mm -hmm. like this is one of those films that like you can read into it a little bit if you want. But at the end of the day, like this is just a fun horror comedy film. You know? Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right. And the horror and the comedy blend very, very well together. So these bitchy line readings work well with what we're about to get to, which is what happens to Rhonda at the lake. Okay, so I think this is probably my least favorite story out of all of them, so I kind of like that it falls in the middle. I like what happens. It goes on a little too long for me, but Hmm. I think my favorite bit from a technical standpoint is when Rhonda and Pirate Boy... Chip. (laughs) <laughs> going down the elevator and you just see mm-hmm. like the three jack-o'-lanterns to mark the other three kids yeah and they're moving and they start slowly going out i thought that was actually a really cool way to like show that mm-hmm. i agree i do think it goes on for a touch long and maybe that's also because we're fans of the lori werewolf storyline and it does feel like that gets the least amount of screen time compared to this one and krieg right yeah that's true but uh, all this to say, so as they're going down this elevator, Rhonda and Chip hear the screams of the others, and he has a bit of a panic attack, so she goes on by herself. She's attacked by watery zombies, she loses her glasses, she passes out in a shallow pond, and of course, this is all a Halloween prank. Mm-hmm. I would murder these kids. Like, yeah. I'm Ooh. not a prankster, <laughs> I'm not, I'm a, I've never cared for practical jokes, and they try to make Schrader, like, make up for it by, like, actually showing that he cares about her. But no, 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 no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> These people suck. 
Yeah. I love that for Schrader, though. Like, the other ones are easy to dislike, mm-hmm. but I love that Schrader tries to make amends and still meets the same fate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He at least has, like, a mini arc, like, a little bit of a heart at the end. But, yeah, I mean, I do like how her character is dressed as a witch. And, you know, we haven't really had that sort of uh, symbolism in this film that's associated mm-hmm. to Halloween just yet. So that's kind of fun. But then at the same time, it is interesting that she's an idiot savant. Like, I feel like that's not really mentioned in a lot of films anymore. Like, Rain Man is so definitive of what an idiot savant looks like and what those characters can be. Mm-hmm. But I kind of liked uh, that sort of representation in the film because you don't usually see that so often. Like, those kids could have made fun of her for anything. I mean, I think it's an easy trap that you could fall into. Like, I mean, like, oh, what's something we saw recently? Oh, like, the Predator movie where it's like, oh, like, magical autism child, you know? Oh, I was thinking of Thomas Jane's character, but no. yes. <laughs> but that's also kind of close. No, no, no. But like, like, where they give you, like, an autistic kid, and it's like, oh, that kid is like, oh, he's special. He has special powers. He can read alien languages. But Which movie is this? The new Predator film. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I love that that's your go-to. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, again, we can also look at Mercury Rising with Bruce Willis, where the autistic kid, you know, cracks a government code. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that movie. Yeah. I mean, I was going to go with Cube, but sure. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> sure. Anyway, there's a bunch of examples of this. <laughs> and this one doesn't, Trick or Treat kind of avoids it. I mean, she is like an expert on Halloween, but it's not like... Is that really an idiot savant? She makes a lot of jack-o'-lanterns, though, and then she, yeah. like, knows a lot about the holidays, so maybe that... I don't really know. I don't I know. I think it's more she just that just the kids are shit. Yeah. yeah. I think she's just a little bit weird, yeah. and she has a sing-song voice, and these kids, these bitchy kids, have decided, <laughs> oh, she's different, yeah. and therefore, let's teach her a lesson. Yeah. Well, you notice, too, Macy gets jealous whenever Schrader is, like, helping her, because, she, like, yeah. uh, Rhonda, like, rests her head in his shoulders, and... Oh, the camera yeah. cuts back to her. Macy has full-on, like, death stares at get your hands off my man. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's another, like, I mean, it's another reference for me, but she just reminds me so much of Chris Hargison from Carrie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This all feels quite indebted to Carrie, for right? Sure. Like, mm-hmm. the kind of naive child who gets taken for a ride by people mm-hmm. who just want to pull a prank on and, her. And, like, the yeah. nice guy who is sort of in on it, but, like, feels bad afterwards. Like, the right. Tommy character. Yeah. Aw, I like Tommy. <laughs> I mean, yes. We, but, like, you know, initially he didn't want to take care of the prom. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to force him to. But then he then he changed his mind. Yeah. Right. But, no, that's a good point. That is very, like, Carrie-esque for sure. And Macy, that actress, she, I mean, I can sympathize. She has some gnarly resting bitch face. Yeah, she sure does. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I get it. But, like, yeah, she can throw some, like, really intense looks, that's for sure. And, and a good example of the brutality without seeing it, though, I do love that uh, Headgear gets, like, dragged away by the chains yes. that she's wearing. <laughs> and you know what that reminded me of was very similar to Krampus, the scene in Krampus where they get dragged mm-hmm. under the snow. Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, those effects are kind of similar in another movie that Doherty directed. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Krampus feels like it's trying to capture the lightning in a bottle that is trick-or-treat, and it's not quite hitting the mark. I agree. I I know that you're less enthused with that film as I am, Joe, but I am excited to revisit it with you one day because while I do agree it doesn't capture the same magic that this film has, because I, I, I too, was let down on a first-time viewing with that film, but um, on a rewatch, I've since grown to appreciate Krampus a lot more. 
Yeah, right. I actually yeah. really like that film in a lot of ways, and there's some really good technical aspects in there. But mm-hmm. and I could see that sort of reimagined in watching some of the effects in this film too. I think yeah. it's because probably though the script doesn't feel quite as clever as this one. I think that's probably the issue. Like it's more of a straightforward tale, you know. Right, and let's not forget we swap out practical for CGI sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. There is practical in that movie, but yes, like the gingerbread, the gingerbread CGI man. stuff yeah. doesn't look great. Bad. It's a little unforgivable. But like the giant jack the jack in the box monster that eats the kid, like that's practical. That looks yeah. great. This and I true. think there's yeah. like some good heart in both of these films. I think that mm-hmm. like he brings some emotional aspects out adjacent to these holidays and these times that make it so nostalgic for everyone and make it to where, you know, you want to celebrate these holidays over and over again every single year. So I think he taps into those emotions pretty well, given that these are horror slash comedy films. Yeah. They do have a pulse, which is something I really appreciate. They do. Yeah. And I think that's another contributing factor to why people like to revisit these films Mm -hmm. at particular times of the year, right? Trick or Treat is capturing something so perfectly about the spirit of the holiday or the celebration that (laughs) makes it seem like, well, I can't let this season go by without Mm -hmm. watching this because it's just ingrained into the culture. This film is so good at capturing what I want to evoke from the season and therefore I must watch it. No, I mean, my, my Christmas double feature is Krampus and Love Actually. (laughs) <laughs> well we all know what the real horror film in that combo is <laughs> fuck you I-, I love how love actually went from like this like period of like oh everyone loves it and now like mm-hmm. everyone hates it like that is some revisionist history that i just like will not abide by oh, I, I watched it last year with my mom it. and i was like this movie is toxic toxic yeah, yeah. I yeah never it is got into it. but i still love it it's sweet and i still love a whole bunch of it but i'm also like this movie's kind of garbage okay wait Marissa, you don't like romantic comedy, so you don't have a say in this match. I do have a say. There are a couple that I do like. I love Harold and Maude. I love Longshot. And I like Never Been Kissed. And that's, oh. you know. Oh, wow. Talking about problematic rom-coms, <laughs> But I, I also love Never Been Kissed. Oh, like, God. But how can you not? But you're like Michael Vartan. Please take 10 steps away from that teenage yeah, girl. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very problematic. But I just think it's so fun. Like, I just think it's a fun movie. Like, Josie's character is really fun. <laughs> No, it Drew, is, Drew it Barrymore's is. yeah charisma like makes that movie. I work, love honestly. Drew Barrymore, but yeah, uh, I mean, I think Harold and Maude is probably my favorite rom com, and then I did <laughs> love Longshot. Yeah, Longshot was good. I was yeah. pleasantly surprised, you know. Yeah, it was it was a good like 2019-2020. Like yeah. Marissa found a rom com she liked and a comic book movie that she liked. Oh my, oh my god! Gosh. Yeah, it was a it was a <laughs> different year, and I I was covering that for BMD at uh what was it South by last year, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh shit, I have to cover Longshot, and I was like, this is so much fun, <laughs> and then like Boys to Men came out on stage, and Charlize Theron was just like wasted. It was so fun. It was so great. <laughs> yeah, uh... love it. Watch it. Yeah, that movie only works for me because of Charlie's. I agree. I would agree. But I rewatched it a couple months ago and it actually held up really, really well. Yeah. Oh, it's smart. I'm disappointed it didn't do better. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, And that is our (laughs) sidebar. Good chat, everyone. (laughs) So all this to say, 
Rhonda gets the upper hand. She ends up walking them out of the elevator. They get eaten and or murdered by the real zombified children. And yeah. she rides to safety. And she just has this awesome bitch walk moment where she's got her single pumpkin still lit in her wheelbarrow. She locks eyes with Sam. Lord knows what he's off to do. I guess this is probably the end of his night. So maybe he's about to retire to whatever pumpkins do. Well, no, no, no. Because the way the film ends, he actually hasn't gone to kill Emma yet. Is this earlier? Yeah, it's earlier. Because oh, we okay. see Rhonda walking down the street as and Sam <gasps> right. sees her. Yeah. This is okay. Yeah, so it, we don't really know why he's out here yet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for the sequel, kids. Yeah. All right, so let's hop back to Lori and finish up her story. So she is being followed and eventually attacked by the vampire in the woods, and her screams are heard by Danielle and Janet, who are worried that she hasn't appeared yet, and then all of a sudden, a body drops out of the sky among these party revelers at Sheep's Meadow. Question. your IMDb trivia. What are the logistics of how she gets this body up in a tree, wrapped in her hooded cloak thing, and then drops it, but then proceeds to walk in from, like, the ground level? I assume she threw the body. Yeah, I think she threw him. Oh, uh, I thought she like dropped him from a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she could have, but yeah. I guess she could, yeah. <laughs> well, she had a winch hidden off to the side, yeah. and she hooked him up. And then she like takes her pigtails out and walks in with her hair all perfect, you know? Like makes yeah. her grand entrance. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hair and makeup. I love yes. how she casually tells them that he bit her and she looks supermodel gorgeous with yeah. the hair and the makeup. Uh-huh. And just thinking, oh, okay, I guess he bit you. Oh, yeah, okay. and her there's just blood all down her neck. So, I mean, it wasn't like a fatal bite at all. It's not mm. normal blood, it's sexy blood. It's sexy yeah. blood, yeah. In her sexy, like, princess outfit, yeah. A sexy quint from sexy jaws fighting sexy sharks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You could imagine, actually, that Henry would have filmed this and maybe wanked to it as part of his nature porno video collection. <laughs> <laughs> So the body in question, of course, belongs to the vampire who is quickly unmasked as Principal Wilkins. And he looks around. He sees that he is surrounded by the bodies of dead men. And cue your Marilyn Manson sweet dream oh my song. Gosh. I, I, so I, great. So, hey, when I hear this song, I think about either this movie or House of Haunted Hill, the rematch. Yes, yes. And I think it's probably put to better use in this film because, y'all, these... These werewolf transformations. I mean, again, bear so in mind, this was, this was set to come out. Well, I was going to say it, it two years after Curse, but Curse was supposed to come out in 2003. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> oh, maybe it got delayed because of werewolfism. Maybe. Anything to do with werewolves has a bad track record. Actually, like, I'm going to do a shout out to Fantastic Fest this year. They had some really solid werewolf programming. I've heard that. I've they heard had that. some good werewolf films. But anyways, yes, the transformations, Trace, they are fantastic. It's just their skin being ripped off. Yes. I mean, again, I, I am sure this has been done before in a werewolf movie. I'm not a werewolf movie connoisseur, unfortunately. But it looks great, and it's gooey, and it's gross. There's a part where, like, they, they rip the arm sleeve off, and it's just yeah. like, ooh, it's so good. <laughs> it's like degloving. Yes! It is. Yeah. Flanagan, you owe us money. Yes, like that Gerald's game scene. And the foley in it, the sound effects in the Mm. foley are just top-notch. So good. So fun. It's like a wet splat. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what makes it work. And there's a cutaway shot where it just shows like almost like a whole skin suit. Like Mm -hmm. actually very Hellraiser-y too, right? Yes. I can see that. 
But then the actual wolf itself. I think the only CGI we get in this scene is like Anna Paquin's back when her like spine starts working up, and I think maybe some of her facial features. I think it all looks good though. Yeah. It does look good, um, but the wolf itself, which I, I think is supposed to be her sister when it comes up. Yeah. Oh, it looks fantastic, and there's the close-ups of the eyes of the wolves. I yeah. mean, it's it's great. I think that's some puppetry work going on. It is. Yeah. 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 It yeah. looks really, really good. It's so fun. I've actually seen people reference this as their favorite werewolf movie because mm. this transformation sequence is so captivating. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, because we have a dearth of, unfortunately, well, werewolf movies. But I also think it's because, though, it's a surprise werewolf movie. Like, if you're just watching this movie, you do not know going into it that you're getting a werewolf movie. So yeah. I think, like, imagine again, imagine if you were watching a movie and it was a surprise aquatic horror, you know? Right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> would you love it? You'd freak Oh, out. I would shit myself, like, yeah. in the theater. <laughs> Like, oh my god, I can't wait. <laughs> oh, it's it's such a fun reveal, too. And it's a great twist. It's It works so well on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of course, uh, to cap the sequence off, we finish with Sam sitting on a log, just watching the wolves feast over a blood moon. Yep. It's cute. <laughs> Um, so now we have possibly the most awkward transition in the film where we just cut to a comic image that says earlier and (laughs) (laughs) we are back on our suburban street and we see trick-or-treaters are being scared out of their candy by Mr. Krieg's dog Spite. (laughs) Spite? I think I thought it was Spike, but I honestly could be totally wrong. Oh, I watched it with subtitles. It's definitely Spike. <laughs> Which makes sense, given Mr. Krieg's character. Yeah. I, I was about to say there's not, there's not much to this scene plot-wise, but there is a lot to this scene just from, like, a stunt perspective. Yeah. yeah. This is properly the climax of the film because it's the most action that we're going to get. I don't mm. know why I said it that way. Action. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I will confess that for me, this is the weakest part of the film. Even though I love Brian Cox and I love the fact that it's most of Sam, like this is the most that we'll get of Sam and the mythology behind the character. I think, again, it just, it plays out a little bit too long. It feels back heavy to me. I feel free to disagree. No, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree that it feels a little too long. I think, though, I mean, describing it as the climax of the film, like, it feels appropriate because not that there's been a ton of buildup up until this, because, again, we've been getting a bunch of climaxes from all the installments. Right. But it feels so batshit insane. Yeah. And the moment when he says, which, I mean, I know is a thing, homage, the moment when he says, you gotta be fucking kidding me, it's just such, like, a good audience moment where it's Mm -hmm. just, like, I can imagine seeing this in a theater and like, especially if it was a festival and like having the audience go nuts during this entire sequence. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. and I think it's fun too, because there's a showdown and you don't really have a showdown yet. You just have like, we're it's too... more like shock reveals, right. right? Shock reveals. And then there's like a victim in some form or another. This is like a fight sequence. Like they go at it. And you also, you have this huge character reveal with Sam, which is, I love it. Uh, it's like, amazing. So, Pumpkin thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's just such a great creature. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. fantastic. There's so many different references in this scene too. Like, you know, the little candy, the red ball, the candy jawbreaker that bounces down the stairs. Trace won't get that. He hasn't seen it. The changeling? Really? Oh yeah, no, I've never seen it. Oh, it's so good. It's so <laughs> I've heard great. it's really it's a ghost story, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's yeah. it's really, really great. You should totally watch it. 
Add it to the list, Joe. We'll cover it one day. Oh, yeah. It's, it's Canadian. It's so good. It's so good. But this is, it's more of like a haunted house film, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's a throwback to that. And then, you know, like the severed hand. I thought that could mm-hmm. either be like Evil Dead or maybe even like Adam's Family style. I, it's just, it's campy. It's fun. It's yeah. creepy. It's violent. It's like everything you kind of want all in one. It's true. My favorite visual gag actually in this sequence is whenever he finally shoots Sham shoot Sham shoots Sam with the <laughs> shotgun. Say it five times fast. Say it five times fast. <laughs> but there's that shot of like where Sam is like sliding down the hallway and just like hits the wall. Yes. 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 <laughs> the lack of sound effects too, right? Oh, like there's true. nothing on the sound on the soundtrack. There's no score. It's just like mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's so good. I do wonder though if the lack of plot is maybe what you're feeling, Joe. Because, like I said, this is just like a 15 to 20 minute fight scene, and I can see how for someone that might be a bit much when there's not really any other drive. I do wonder maybe if they had revealed that he was the bus driver beforehand, even though I think it's pretty obvious by this point. Like, it, I think if you're following the film and you can see how it's kind of putting the pieces together. Mm-hmm. I think that it's easy to predict that, 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 that this is how he plays into the film. So I was such a dum-dum on a first viewing of this film that I completely forgot that we didn't know who the bus driver was. And it was out of sight, out of mind (laughs) until we see him burning those photos. And then we actually see the picture of him with the kids in the fireplace. And I was like, all right. I don't think that makes you a dum-dum. I think this just speaks to like, there's a lot going on in this film, you know? Like there are multiple different storylines. There's lots of different scenes in the middle. You know, I can see how you would need like a little refresher. Someone might need like a little refresher. You know what I mean? Well, because even when he goes out into the yard because he hears a sound, right? And then he goes out into the yard and you're like, oh, right. Yes, he had that interaction with Wilkins earlier. So we get to see that repeat. And it's so easy to have forgotten about it because it feels like, oh, well, this isn't that story. We've already seen that story. That was an hour ago. But I think, again, because of the way that Trick or Treat is structured, it pays that off. And I think it rewards multiple viewings because then you're looking for those connections and realizing that we're playing with time at the same time. Well, yeah, and I love movies like that, honestly, that sort of warrant another viewing like Us. If you watch that film, Jordan Peele's Us, a second time around, it's almost a completely different film because you're viewing it differently. And then same with like Hereditary. There's so many little things that Ari Oster, little hints of, you know, foreshadowing that he put in there that you may not have caught the first time. And Trick or Treat is one of those films where it sort of begs you to watch it again and there's subtle things you might miss, you know? Yeah. One of my favorite parts of that final scene, like what Trace was talking about, when he gets shot, mm-hmm. it's not blood that's shooting on the walls. <laughs> it's like pumpkin seeds and the pumpkin inside guts. of pumpkin guts. And I love that. It's just so fun. And and the, the face design on Sam is just... Oh, it's creepy. Creepy yeah. as hell, yeah. Yeah. It's part of the shared pumpkin head verse. Yes. <laughs> I just think it's so perfect. He's so creepy. And even when, like, he just sort of stands there and tilts his head like Michael Myers does, like, that was mm-hmm. a nod to Halloween, Ooh, too. The shot of him crawling on the ceiling, too, as Wilkins, is at the, as, um, damn it, as Krieg is at the door. Oh, yes. yeah, I forgot mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. yeah. That's Ugh. actually very easy to miss on a first-time watch as yeah. well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, overall, I I think it's a fun scene. I can see why it's your least favorite, Joe. I think it's just too much fun for me, which is why, like, even though I think the school bus massacre, like, zombie kid stuff held more narrative weight, 
it's not quite as compelling as this fight scene is for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, that one's more of a slow burn. This one's more of a traditional, Marissa, you said it's like a, almost like a battle sequence, right? Yeah. Well, and they actually used like a nine-year-old stunt double and then a little person Sorry. stunt double, I think, as well. <laughs> and I was thinking like, damn, that'd be so fun as a kid to be a stunt double in oh, movies. Yeah. That sounds like a really fun gig, actually. Mm-hmm. But another funny uh, behind-the-scenes little tidbit I found about that last scene was that they put a wig on him, that gray wig with the long hair, as a kind of reference to John Carpenter, but it totally fell flat and no one really got it. He just looks very disheveled. Yeah, I saw that John Carpenter reference and I was like, who was doing the makeup and costumes and hair in this <laughs> yeah, movie? Yeah, definitely fell And short. also, rude. <laughs> I know. So No, funny. guys, this is John Carpenter. It's like a homage and everybody's thinking, this yeah. person looks like a hobo. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like of all the, you know, references and like tributes you can do, like throw up a movie poster on the wall or something. Like, right. That's kind of a weird one. But yeah, it totally falls short. It's still a fun scene, and like how he pulls out the candy bar with the uh, razor blade in there to mm-hmm. stab him. You know, trying to figure out candy to use in the film without any sort of like big labels coming up with their own candy. Oh, I bet they couldn't use any labels. No. I bet no candy company would let them do that. No, so if you look at or the they candy, it. yeah, like you can't have name brand candies. So they invented like a couple of different candy companies to put wrappers in close up shots, and then they just had like generic unwrapped candy for like other scenes where it would just fall in bulk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they named the the named candy bars are after people on the production crew. Oh, really? That's cool. Hmm. I like that. Those are fun little things I like. Yeah, I think the final homage that we haven't mentioned is the Achilles Slash, which a lot of people attribute to Pet Cemetery and Gage. Yeah, those always get me. I love a good Achilles. Oh, it's so gnarly. It gets me every time. (laughs) Trace, do you like this one better or do you like the one in Urban Legend that we talked about on Patreon? I love this one because I like it when you can see the... Honestly, we're talking best Achilles tendon slices. <laughs> it's going to be hostile. Like, that that's the best oh, one. Okay. Mm. But fair, fair. this is still good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't have Brian Cox saying, The Weekend. In that's this, true. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll make do. It's The Weekend, Reese. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about? We've covered all the kind of ups and downs. I do like the part where Brian Cox ends up getting his hands cut on all the broken glass, and then he can't open his multiple locks because he's a paranoid weirdo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, I don't think there's much left here to discuss. And honestly, that's kind of the end because we just get, like, last little shots of everyone. You know, we get to see Wilkins' son raiding on the doorstep. Rhonda's walking around with her wagon. The werewolf girls are driving and almost hit Rhonda. Yeah. <laughs> girls, come on. But then we wind up right back where we started with Sam looking at, well, he looks at Rhonda, then he's looking at Emma coming home to blow out that jack-o'-lantern. Mm-hmm. Well, and also the special needs kids have to show back up at Krieg's door so that they can exact their revenge. Right. And I, I do like that. I, I love the cutaway to the comic book. It calls to mind Tales from the Crypt for me, even though I'm sure it has been a thing before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, it actually reminded me of, because as a kid, I never watched Tales from the Crypt, but I did watch the, um, oh god, the animated series. I think it was called Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But they used the same thing, where, like, you know, the end of the episode would uh, cut back to the comic book. 
it was just really scary to me as a kid. It's funny, right? Because it still has a certain power. Like there's something about watching live action transform into animation. Because I'm thinking back to even Random Acts of Violence, the Jay Baruchel film that we did on Patreon. Mm-hmm. I really liked that element. And I remember us talking about how we wish that there was more, more of, of it. it. Yeah. And they do it a little bit in this. It's still not, not a lot, but I think enough to where it like, gets the point across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I just like how they also ended on that final scene was with the older man who like, you know, it's very much that point in your life where you become old and grumpy. And, you know, you close your doors on Halloween and you turn off your lights, you know, because yeah. you have these different stages of the film that you go through, like being a kid and being with your dad on Halloween and making a jack-o'-lantern or, you know, being in your 20s and going out and like hooking up at parties for Halloween and you know, being a teenager, and then you have this, like, older self that's, like, over the holiday and doesn't want anything to do with it, you know? And I right. just I just really like how they sort of did the climax on that part of it. But, mm. you know, another thing, I really didn't appreciate the music of this film until, like, I rewatched it recently, and I really like it. Douglas Pipes is the composer, and he also did Monster House and, and Krampus. also Krampus. Yeah. And Waxwork Records put out a really beautiful LP of it a couple of years ago, but the score is actually really awesome. It's super creepy at times, really whimsical at times, that action scene. Like, I don't think there's any score playing during that, but leading up to it is really fun. Like, I think that it covers a lot of really good aspects of whimsical and playful horror. Mm-hmm. his Krampus score is the same way because I 100% bought that the second I saw the movie in theaters <laughs> oh yeah it's so fun he's great and I don't think he's done a whole bunch of movies but I would love to see him do more horror scores I mean I don't think Doherty brought him back for Godzilla King of the Monsters which is a shame but oh well I don't know I mean maybe he just doesn't do those kinds of scores you know I mean mm-hmm I mean, the films that you've described, the three of those, those are all pretty firmly in like a horror comedy wheelhouse, right? right. So I wonder if his scores lend themselves better to that. But sure. it's funny because it almost sounds like, oh, he might be a good match for like a Tim Burton kind of film or maybe a Tim Burton of old film. Right. I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Yeah. Or even like, um, you know, the new witches movie with Robert Zemeckis, you know, he oh, has yeah, yeah. Silvestri is coming back for that. You know, he's a composer doing the film for that, which it works, but I could very easily see maybe Pipes doing the witches remake. Mm-hmm. Right. Hmm. Which, strangely enough, is uh, coming out this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> yeah, I um gosh, I need to get caught up on all the releases and everything, but... Oh, Marissa, no. Just let it go. <laughs> you literally cannot. No. Nope. You will drown in <laughs> oh October Oh my gosh, releases. that's true. That's very true. But yeah, the music <laughs> is fantastic and super fun, and that's a composer, I think, to kind of, like, keep your eye on. Well, that's good. Well, I mean, yeah, and that, that kind of wraps it up. Joe, we did talk about it, I think, probably throughout the episode, but I know, like, is there anything more you wanted to say about the anthology setup and how it kind of, like, is the pinnacle of anthologies for you yeah i mean i think 
one of the reasons that people like this film is that it confirms that anthology films can be done in a certain way that is more satisfying. Because I think, Marissa, you mentioned off the top that you're not a big fan. And to be honest, neither am I. Same. And one of the reasons is because it feels like whenever you go into it, you're inevitably going to be disappointed in one of the stories. Well, they also feel like, I mean, like if you've ever been to a film festival and like there's like a short segment, you go see a bunch of shorts instead of a feature film. Like it just feels kind of like that, you know? Yes. Yes. The strength of Trick or Treat is because they're so meshed together. It doesn't right. feel like one ends and then you have to start from the beginning again. Like you're already invested in these, so you don't have to pick up the steam. And maybe that's another reason why I don't love this final story with Krieg is because it does feel like a soft reboot. Like we've seen him a little bit, but we mm-hmm. really have to start back from the beginning of the night. Like literally it says earlier. Right. But even that, like it's a quibble, not a real complaint, because I think this film is so well engineered and the stories are so well intermingled that it feels very satisfying. And there's just such a, a fun vibe to all of the stories. Like it, they don't feel like they're struggling with disparate tones like you sometimes get with anthologies mm-hmm. that have different directors even. That's mm-hmm. true. That yeah. was a lot. I apologize. No, no. I, I, no that... It wasn't a word vomit. Like, it makes sense. And yeah. I, I can't really add anything else to that because I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why this film works so well. Not because you're right, but because of everything you said. Oh, no. It works <laughs> because I'm right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. I, I'm right there with you. And, it, you know, it's it's not even one of those movies where I'm like, oh, it's such a great anthology movie. Like, it's a great movie. Right. There's no concession. Yeah, right. it's a great film, great holiday movie, great Halloween movie, great anthology movie. Like, yeah, it's, it's so it's fun. Taking all those boxes. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Glad we're all in agreement. It's always nice when we all like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think that'll kind of wrap up the film. So before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Marissa, is there anything you'd like to plug or tell us about? Yeah, so right now I just have a podcast that I'm currently working on through a website called Downright Creepy, and it's me and three other girls who talk about, you know, the supernatural, paranormal, cryptids, true crime, horror films, serial killers, all that good stuff. It's called Black Magic Coven, and you can find us on anywhere you can really stream podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Mm -hmm. and... Other than that, just continuing writing and covering films. Primarily, I've been writing lately for Slash Film. And you can check out my work. I post on Twitter. So you can follow me at Marissa underscore Miraball. And I will go to bat, too, for the podcast. I've listened to your first two episodes so far. I think as of this recording, y'all have had four come out. Yes. But yeah, I mean, your intro episode is one like ours where it's like kind of like getting to know all of y'all and like y'all's connections to horror and everything. And the second one, though, is the cannibal murder thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a really... Uh, Joe, this is why I brought up that movie Grim Love to you a little while ago because mm-hmm. Marissa was watching it for this episode of her podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. But um, it's it's really fun to hear four women talk about a man who um, ate a man's penis. Or I'm sorry, <laughs> a man who paid a man to eat his penis. Oh, yeah. It <laughs> yeah, was consensual. <laughs> it was consensual and everything. So, yeah, we talk about some fun stuff. We did another episode on the Cecil Hotel and then Lavinia Fisher, which is the first uh, female serial killer and we have a cryptid episode coming out soon so uh, lots of different spooky topics it's it's a good yeah. time yeah <laughs> so That's yeah fun. everyone make sure y'all check that out please it's really good fun um, and if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horror queers and join our horror queers facebook group to hang out with other listeners 
If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, although Apple Podcasts is always the best option for that. If you would like HQ merchandise, please check out our store at TeePublic. Just search for Horror Queers on teepublic.com. And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We're reaching the end of October, but we've already released episodes on Ratched, Books of Blood, and The Haunting of Bly Manor. And actually, in the next couple days, we'll have an episode on Ben Wheatley's readaptation of Rebecca. Yep. Next week, we will release our audio commentary on Halloween H2O, just in time for Halloween, or Samhain, whatever you'd like to call this holiday slash celebration. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we can't seem to decide. But Joe, I thought we were really getting into the Halloween spirit with this week's episode, but I think next week might be an even more popular Halloween choice. What is it? This is true, yeah. So as we barrel our way towards 100 episodes, Trace, we are going to wrap up October and our special Halloween episode. This is actually kind of fun because at this time last year, former guest on the show Ariel Fisher and I went on Entertainment Tonight Canada to do a live debate about the best Halloween film. And I went on defense for Trick or Treat and Ariel went to bat for... Hocus Pocus. I love that neither one of y'all went for Halloween. <laughs> uh, we we were politely asked not to. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. I've seen Hocus Pocus countless times. It is probably my the, the one film that would qualify as my gateway horror, because if you're a kid watching this movie, Billy the Zombie is fucking terrifying. Hmm. And, I mean, there's arguably a bit of queer content in there, because I think it's been really influential on drag culture. Yeah, just a touch. And also, the director's a big old homo. He is a big old homo. He would go on to direct what? I think some high school musical movies. Just a few. (laughs) So everyone, tune in next week for our special episode on Hocus Pocus. Hopefully, I'll tide you all over until your COVID Halloween. Marissa, thank you again for joining us this week to discuss Trick or Treat. Thank you all so much for having me. This was a blast. Uh, Thanks, Marissa. Yeah. And on that note, we can cross out Trick or Treat. Yes, and cross out horror queers. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>